Everybody, welcome to Disarming Leviathan. My name is Caleb, and this podcast is designed to help equip you to reach American Christian nationalists as a mission field. Uh, today, we have uh, Jared Stacy on the program. He is doing research, his PhD research, in Scotland, of all places, which is pretty cool. Uh, and his research is on uh, the church and conspiracy theories. So we're going to talk a lot about uh, how... Uh, evangelical Christianity, especially in America, seems to be uh, really into conspiracies and why that is. He's got a lot of great insights that I'm excited to share with you uh, today. Uh, but also, he is has served as a pastor. He has a huge heart for the local church, and he shares some of his story uh, serving as a pastor in different parts of America and what led him to this particular research. And so without further ado, here is Jared Stacy. Jared, you and I grew up uh, in evangelicalism, 80s, 90s. Tell us about how that experience was for you and how that uh, brought you to today. Yeah, um, I think probably like a lot of your listeners, um, it was just Christianity. Um, there was no distinguishing uh, fundamentalism from evangelical. I didn't have that uh, lingo I didn't have that lexicon to talk about these things. It was presented to me as a whole complete package. And as a kid um, growing up into youth group, it was also consumed as a complete package. So it wasn't just what I was being taught. I remember distinctly like post 9-11. I live in the UK now. uh, So I remember a missionary coming from the UK uh, right after 9-11. And the whole sermon that he gave at our church in the States was about how Muslims were taking over the United Kingdom and that if we didn't Hmm. stop them, that the church and Christianity would cease to exist, that persecution would come. This was around the time of Columbine and everything that came up with that. So it was all in the water and it was all what I would have called Christianity. And distinguishing, separating, kind of being able to figure out, okay, what, what was cultural baggage? What was part of the politics of the time? That's all kind of coalesced and then come out to something else entirely different and produce something. But in the time, in the moment, it was just following Jesus. That's what it meant. And that was what I was raised in. That's what I was kind of born into. That's what was appealing to um my family and our story at the time, like this very strong brand of fundamentalism. So I wasn't just broadly evangelical. Wheaton was liberal. Uh, Liberty was liberal. And yet we weren't Westboro. So some of your listeners will know that Westboro was a fundamentalist, fundamentalist church, like picketing the funerals of soldiers. So I'd I'd locate myself uh, left of Westboro, but right of a place like Wheaton, uh, Liberty, that's kind of the water that I was, the part of the stream that I was born into. Hmm. So your experience in the nineties is very conservative, fundamentalist. Mm -hmm. How, like, as you're looking back on that season now, how do you see like conspiracy type thinking, uh, shaping that culture then? I think it inherited the entire fundamentalist project with dispensationalism. Uh, I was really familiar with the charts. 
Um, this is kind of this is kind of a, a, a hail mary to some listeners who might know this, others don't. Mm-hmm. But I felt like I reached a point in my in my Christian spiritual journey when I went and bought a, Co- a Schofield study Bible, right? Okay. Yeah. Um, and Schofield was back in the early 20th century was really made dispensationalism, this whole end time scenario, very popular in the United States. And so the charts and the maps and reading Daniel and Revelation, like the 70 weeks in Daniel, this whole kind of cryptology and, and finding a code and, and looking to the scriptures to interpret each and every event and predict each and every geopolitical event. I came to find out that this stuff was going on predicting stuff in the 30s, like Mussolini. But mm. as a kid, what it meant for me was, oh, at youth camp one year after 9-11, we had the the big come to Jesus sermon was actually a sermon on Revelation 18, where he said, this is describing the fall of the Twin Towers on 9-11. And, mm-hmm. and so I wouldn't have called them conspiracy theories. That's, that's probably the first thing I would have called them. This is how you read the Bible. This is how, mm-hmm. this is how a good Christian interprets the world around us is through what I've come to call, okay, that, that's kind of conspiratorial thinking. Um, but it doesn't, it doesn't traffic, it doesn't register like a conspiracy theory in those spaces. It registers as this is what a good Bible-believing Christian believes. And what's been interesting is coming out of those spaces, uh, myself and many others have, have come to grips with that and have still hold to the Bible, but in different ways, uh, and that's something that's happened not just in my f- friend relationships, but family as well. And so mm-hmm. that that kind of change out of those systems and out of that way of holding the faith has been positive. And then I also don't need, I mean, I don't need to say, but it's also been in- incredibly difficult because it hasn't always been, oh, everybody's gone this direction. It, it's, it's, it's been both and it's been contentious uh, and full of tension and rupture as well as reconciliation all through it. So you grew up in this uh, environment in which conspiratorial thinking, fear-mongering, us versus them, that's like in the water. Mm-hmm. Uh, for those in it, it's just what Christianity is. Uh, and the scripture is viewed through a very, very specific lens, uh, right. viewing um, a, a apocalyptic literature as mm-hmm. very much telling you about how to interpret today, specifically with an eye towards... Uh, the Armageddon moment or the right. end, uh, the end of days. And usually the enemies in the Bible are also America's enemies. Right. Uh, One that, in the same kind of maps over. So any sort of like globalistic thing or the UN, mm-hmm. Russia, uh, China, these are all kind of mapped onto these biblical uh, right. figures of evil uh, or antichrist. So you're, Swimming in these waters as a you know as a child teenager, then you're a grown up. Uh, what was it like for you then? How what was your engagement with the church after you kind of went through high school and grew up? Yeah, I mean, I think it sounds like what you're asking is how did I change? And yeah. that's something that's <laughs> di- that's that's hard to articulate um, because in some ways too, I have to be honest about the slowness. <laughs> of that. Mm. And, and it's difficult to look back and identify 
what might have been like high watermark moments or fulcrum moments or pivot mm-hmm. moments where I mean maybe the biblical language for that is like the Kairos. Like yeah. th- there was an opportune moment um, where my path intersected with someone or an event. My mind actually first goes to um, the fir- the 2008 presidential election. Okay. And I was a student at Liberty and uh, I fasted for, hmm. ag- I fasted against Obama. I fasted against okay. his election. It's the first time that I ever remember fasting. And if you remember, right, Obama won. So the whole fat, I, and I remember thinking, well, what was the point? I hmm. walked down to Sonic I didn't even wait until like the end of the election night. I was, you know, I, I was, I walked down to Sonic, which was the closest fast food place. Oh, uh, I bought, I bought the biggest double cheeseburger I could. Yes, and sir. I just, uh-huh. I just owned it. <laughs> right. It was gone. And, Slam that uh, Coney dog. Yeah. Right. And, and I, I share that as kind of maybe one moment where I was in a very, I was still in a very comfortable space. Right. Hmm. Um, but I was also in a space where, for the first time in my life, I was able to identify people who maybe voted differently than me. I remember showing up to convocation after the election and seeing people who were celebrating and Mm. that kind of jarred me, but I still felt that I was on the right side, quote unquote. But at the same time, I also was dealing with this fact of like, well, I participated in this. It was the first election I voted in. I fasted. It didn't work out the way I I was supposed to. And I, I couldn't articulate it at the time, but that was a sort of crisis where it's, well, how does God work in elections? Yeah, And that was a, a key moment. The next kind of big is it wasn't a moment. It was a series of moments condensed into a, a particular time and place was when I was in New Orleans. Uh, so I graduated from school, uh, got married, and we spent the first three or four years of marriage and uh, ministry and career and studies all in New Orleans. And uh, New Orleans we were there from between 2013 to about 2016, right before Trump was elected. And so we were in new Orleans when, uh, Ferguson, Michael Brown, all of these things took place in our national consciousness. And I was in a place and in a church pastoring at the time where all the insularity that I had taken for granted at Liberty suddenly was taken away. Hmm. And for maybe the first time in my life, I was seeing, and grappling with not a different way of being Christian, but also like a different way of being American and mm-hmm. different life experiences. And so that in the, in a very positive sense ruined me um, mm-hmm. because a lot of the things that I had been told, a lot of the narratives that had been kind of put forward in the us versus them binary that are a huge feature of conspiracies suddenly didn't work because now I had a name and a face and time to, to mm-hmm. kind of put that, put those, those fears or those narratives up against. So, well, this, this is not congruent. And so when I was in New Orleans, I lost a lot of integrity to that mm. way of thinking and that way of being Christian because, well, funny enough, I, I was also coming to grips with, wow, there's a lot of different ways to be an American that I'm not always aware of. Mm-hmm. And so there was the the race dimension there. There was the socioeconomic. And of course, those are always blended together. And, and we were in a church, right, where – it was really beautiful. It, 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 it was not what I was used to, but it was beautiful. And, uh, and so that, that was a very formative moment in a way that I could probably keep talking about. Um, 
But when I went back for the next four years into uh, a suburb right outside of DC. So we left New Orleans, went to a suburb outside of DC, and I was a young adults pastor. So I was in this community that was basically the last conservative frontier outpost before you headed into uh, quote unquote Satan's den, <laughs> the uh-huh. no- Northern Virginia, right? That's that's how people talked about it. Used spiritual language. Oh, it's dark up there. And I was on mm-hmm. the campus in this conservative uh, outpost of Fredericksburg, and I was at Mary Washington, which is incredibly secular, if you want to use that language. But uh, so the the stalking the border, the the kind of tension between being inside these insular Christian communities and knowing my experience in New Orleans was that out, outside of those communities, it's not always what we think. It's not, it's not the fear that we're constantly, I was constantly goaded with. So the New Orleans experience then dropping us essentially back into Bible belt reactionary uh, country right in the middle of the Trump campaign hmm. uh, was in, in a lot of ways was just kind of giving us a front row seat to the next four years. Um, to the point that uh, after I resigned, we were moving to Scotland, um, right? Like when we talk about January 6th, in our immediate context, we're talking about, we know what churches in our community had buses going there. Wow. And so <laughs> January 6th was not some national event to us. It was a local event where we're aware of Christians mm-hmm. and churches who, whether they wanted to or not, were involved. And so yeah. uh, that's that's kind of that front row seat uh, that everything kind of happened over 2016, 2017, 2018. That's where we found ourselves. And the, the lack of congruence that, that happened with me in New Orleans was just basically exposed in Fredericksburg. Mm-hmm. Um and so, yeah, the, the, I understand the tension and have lived that tension between feeling like how, how as a pastor can I speak in such a way that encourages people to step into that kind of frontier, that uncomfortable space where we're really trying to be determined by Jesus and all that we say, do, or think, but recognizing that the church has become so politically captive and economically captive in all of these ways that when you speak out, people believe that they are determined by Jesus when they're really captive to these other ways of thinking. Uh, and so that creates not just tension, but fracture. And mm-hmm. it can be, and I don't have to tell you this, and I'm sure many of your listeners can kind of nod their head and say, yeah, I, I, we understand this, this kind of existential crisis uh, and tension that is palpable, but it's also visceral. We don't always know how to articulate it and I'm sitting here in Scotland three years after this with distance and all this kind of stuff. And I'm still, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's not an easy or light thing to talk about, but, and I'll, I'll leave with this and then uh, we can keep the conversation going. One of the most important things that I've found coming out of that time in Fredericksburg and being here and saying, we still need to have these conversations is because there is, I do think a ministry of reminding each other the ways that we are not crazy and the only way that we can have that ministry of you're not crazy is by reminding ourselves what it means to be determined by Jesus. Because everyone mm-hmm. says they're determined by Jesus. So in some ways, we're no different than anybody else who says, I, I'm I'm MAGA and I'm a MAGA because I'm a Christian. Well, they, they think mm-hmm. they're determined by Jesus. So in some ways, we're, we're no different in saying that mm-hmm. we're trying to be determined by Jesus. But at some point in time, we have to 
do that work of repentance and examination and, and figuring out where the, where the divestment and dispossession occurs um, so that we have legs to stand on, not to, to judge others or to separate, but really to stand as witnesses to Jesus Christ and say, this is what it means to look and looks like to follow Jesus in America in 2023, 2024. Um, so yeah, I, that, that's, that's kind of the narration of what have brought us here, uh, mm-hmm. where we uh, kind of what we've come out of and kind of how we've tried to, had, had to unpack that. I, I couldn't articulate it like this two years ago. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's, it's difficult still is. And I imagine for, for most of us, we're going to spend a great deal of our lives thinking about what happened these last few years and how our faith has, um, been terminated in some ways and been expanded and and redirected in others. Mm, Yeah, that's so good. So you, three years ago, you leave, uh, American evangelicalism behind, right? You sail across the deep blue ocean over to beautiful <laughs> Scotland where yes. I wish I was. Uh, right now. <laughs> you know, yeah, it's great. Uh, I do. Yeah. That's where my people are from. And, uh, I, I can't wait to get over there. Um, but you're, you're in Scotland, you're studying. Tell me about, tell us about your studies, what drew you to this particular field and how you think it helps the church. Um, I think the first thing that I would say in coming here um, is that there's something to be gained from living outside the United States. Hmm. Um, I could have done the online thing here. Um, we moved in the middle of the pandemic, so we, de- oh, we wow. definitely could have yeah. done the online thing here. I think what drove me um, to this, as much as it might be easy to say, oh, it was the external stuff, um, that was certainly part of it. But there was also something intrinsic about who I am that I remember picking up the phone and talking to who now became my supervisor, Brian Brock. And what I didn't talk about was Trump and the state of American evangelicalism. I actually told him, I can't stop reading, man. <laughs> um, and so that's that's the personal side of it. But once we got on the ground here, it became very apparent that – two things. My, th- my, my ability to talk about God had basically collapsed, hmm. that I had experienced a theological existential crisis. Um, the theology that I was trying to use to begin my research and narrate was in many ways the very same theology that I was seeing misused, both in our local context and in our national context. And so it, it became very apparent that I had to learn how to talk about God again in a way that I believed. <laughs> um, not just that it was logically or academically understandable and, and coherent, but that I actually was confessing and professing something when mm-hmm. I was writing. Um, and so I... I say all that to say I didn't know I needed that when I signed on to come here. Um, that was something that God has gone ahead of us and provided for our family to to do and to be. So it's almost like it's stupid. <laughs> like I didn't know what kind of program I needed. I didn't know what kind of supervisor I needed. I didn't know what I think, what I would say now sets Aberdeen apart. I didn't know any of this. Um, I experienced a theological crisis, a complete collapse of not just the theological system, but like a reality. 
I was, I was in, I was ruined and, and, and no amount of God language, no amount of God talk, no amount of, um, spiritual discipline could recover that. So to speak, honestly, I remember telling our friends here after about a year, like I have, I can't re- I haven't read the Bible in about six months to a year. Yeah. Uh, in the sense that every time I do, it is, it is difficult to separate the words I'm reading from the framework that I was previously using. Hmm. So I'm, I'm, I'm describing a collapse. And so I hope if there's anyone listening, right. Who maybe feels similarly or would maybe think that academia is just this place where (laughs) people go to, uh, think really high thoughts that don't touch the common man. Like for me, it's been almost the opposite that this has been a place of restoration and healing and learning how to talk about God in our world. And with a place like Aberdeen or any of these institutions that don't necessarily tout themselves as seminaries, they get a bad rap (laughs) for places. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I'm, I'm kind of here, almost a recruiting pitch for Aberdeen to say that there, there is a place out here um, that is committed to taking God seriously. Uh, and that takes many forms, but um, yeah, that's, that's, that's the personal sort of academic dynamic that we met when we hold God here. But you all, you also asked about my research. I'm assuming that's, yeah. that's what we're talking to. Yeah. Tell me more about that. It became really apparent. Um, looking at what I was interested in studying, uh, that it was centered on evangelicalism and particularly everything going on January 6th and Trump. And, but the problem of conspiracy theories was something that my supervisors kind of put forward. And it's something that I was talking about writing articles about, and it was something that was interesting. And what we kind of realized was that after a whole couple weeks and months of reading history about evangelicalism, recognizing two things. Conspiracy theory has always been in the toolkit of American evangelicals Hmm. and history can record that, but there's really, there's, there's lacking a whole lot of theological analysis of the kind of work that it does. So that's the first thing. But the second thing is realizing this is not, this won't be a project about conspiracy theory. This is a project about evangelicals believing conspiracy. Those are two Hmm. different things. Um, And so, yeah, this is my, my research is for evangelicals about evangelicals um, by uh, someone who's adjacent to being evangelical, however Mm -hmm. you want to define or claim it. So there, that was a really good supervising process, but it was also a personal process too of recognizing I'm not someone who would come into a doctorate program like this and um, I get lost in, in abstraction. Like uh, I was a pastor for 10 years and I want to touch grass <laughs> mm-hmm. and, uh, and nothing is, nothing is easier than in some ways losing yourself in w- wisping after clouds. Hmm. Um, and so conspiracy theories was a way in a lot of ways to focus and keep a project touching grass um, in something that was affecting people's real lives in something that was, had affected my life um, and something that would, I think serve American evangelicals um, and American Christians in general 
um, because this is something that it's not just Christians that are facing. Conspiracy theories are a global human problem. And, yeah. uh, and so my research is kind of trying to talk about something universal by talking about it very, very, very specifically. So I think for many of our listeners, we've noticed that conspiratorial thinking and ideas are, seems like the volumes being, volumes being mm-hmm. turned up a little bit through yeah. family members and friends. Uh, many of us don't really remember hearing uh, about these yeah. types of things, like early 2000s, certainly there were some, but it was, it's kind of like, uh, you know, the volume was like at a three and mm-hmm. now, uh, it, boy, is it, it's like at an 11 to quote yep. Spinal Tap. I mean, it's <laughs> turned all the way up. Yeah. Um, and many of our friends, family, loved ones, they're, they're, they're coming to it, you know, we're sitting at the kid's birthday party and they're talking about lizard people and pedophile rings in a pizza parlor and, you know, it, it, it at least gives the impression that they fully believe this. And it's, you know, they're saying these things in earnest. Um, right. They, they've heard about it somewhere and they, they, they give the impression that they've kind of discovered something and they want us to know the truth mm-hmm. uh, of what's really going on. Right. What's going on? <laughs> Help us. So we're experiencing the phenomenon, Jerry, yeah. but we yeah. don't understand it. Help us understand what's happening to our loved ones. Um, so maybe maybe if we could start talking and using a Shrek analogy, because we've made a lot okay. of 90s, 2000s analogies yes. here. Good. Uh, Donkey tells Shrek he's like an onion. And that's exactly what this problem is kind of like. There's no... There's no direct linear line to talking about this. You're talking about peeling an onion and there's a lot of layers to it. So to break it down in a, in and distill it in a way that helps people touch grass, Thanksgiving's coming up, holidays are coming up. uh, Mm -hmm. These kind of conversations are going to happen and they will surprise you, right? Because many of us were in lockdown and our family members and friends were fine. And then all of a sudden, uh, hey, did you know that Tom Hanks is a pedophile and I'm right. not going to watch his movies anymore? Um, those sort of things startle us and we're not always prepared um, for how to deal with it. Um, so a, a couple of things on this onion, right, of the problem of conspiracy theory. Um, the first I would say is this, is that science, scientific studies, so psychology, there's a, psycho- a psychological dimension here, actually prove that the more that you take this stuff on, head on, (laughs) the more you're going to entrench someone in that, whatever claim Mm -hmm. they're trying to double down on. Like you, you irrespective of how much you love them and irregardless of, of how much you try to argue rationally, Mm -hmm. the, the act of arguing. So it's not about how good your argument is. It's actually about the positioning of yourself in an argument to begin with Hmm. is going to exacerbate the tension and may lead to a doubling down uh, of both of you. Uh, And that's something to be aware of. Um, And that's really practical. That's really practical. Like uh, we all have an, we all have a choice and a decision to make. Am I going to let this turn into a, an argument? Um, And, and maybe, maybe you decide, yes, maybe this is the time to push back. Um, You know, everyone has, uh, different personality. Everyone has a different way of looking at this, but that's that's part of the onion. Is deciding: Am I gonna? 
am I going to argue this? Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe a second question is, can I? You know, uh, appealing to common sense is not always the common sense. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, in the sense that if if you're not researched on this, uh, in in some cases it doesn't matter how many good facts you have. In other cases, it might matter how many facts you have Um, because, and this is kind of the second part of the onion. One of the things I realized very quickly is that uh, there's nothing worse than being called a conspiracy theorist. I mean, it's, Uh it's, it's akin and now it can be a badge of honor, right? People go, Oh yeah, call me a conspiracy theorist. But in, in the cultural lexicon too, um, it's, it's almost like a form of leprosy, right? Hmm. Like it's a way of writing someone off and saying unclean, unclean. And I haven't always done good with this. And sometimes we, we do have to call a spade a spade, but it's also very clear too, that when you push someone to say, well, why don't you define a conspiracy theory? It's like, uh, uh, and, and then that we're kind of exposed to saying, well, maybe we're, we're, maybe we're path, uh, creating a, a pathological relationship here with someone We're we're wanting to pathologize them to, to call them a leper in a modern sense of the word. So those are kind of the two immediate, like, warning signs of, okay, are, are you, am I going to get an argument? Cause arguments don't always have the conclusion that I want. And, and then the second thing is, am, am I kind of trafficking in like a, a pathological way and saying like, well, if, if you believe that, you know, you're, you're, you're divorced from reality, you're crazy. Da, 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 and, and, and so this is, this is what I'd say. I'm going to make an assumption. I'm going to start going into this third layer of the onion. And this is where someone asked me recently, what's the common ground? How can I find common ground with someone who mm-hmm. says, did you know that Joe Biden is actually Jim Carrey in a mask? That was a real mm-hmm. one. I've, I've, mm-hmm. that, that is one that has been passed along to me throughout research. It's like, yeah, some people believe Joe Biden, Jim Carrey in a mask. Um, how do we find common ground? And, and more specifically, how do we find common ground among Christians? Right. So I'm, I'm going to make an assumption just for the sake of our time together today, your work on Christian nationalism. I'm going to make an assumption that this is, let's say that this is a problem that is between Christians. And someone says, very common scenario, let's say that someone says to you, I can't, over Thanksgiving, I can't believe you believe that. I can't believe that you listen to the mainstream media. Now, what's actually going on there? And what I want to suggest to listeners is to hit pause on that for a second and think about why that actually makes sense as a Christian. Because the distrust of media, the distrust of an official narrative, that is absolutely part of what makes someone prone to conspiracism. But there's a reason that this is particularly a hook for evangelicals. Because evangelicals, or to be a Christian, we, we do believe in a very radical claim not just a radical claim, but a reality defining claim hmm. that, that Jesus is the meaning and the measure of all things. That's what the resurrection entails. The, the, a new creation. Hmm. Now there's some common ground and it might make us uncomfortable. Cause like, where is this guy taking us? He's taking us right into the lion's den almost to say, you know what? I actually have more in common with my conspiracy theory, loving family members than mm. I might've thought. Now let me preface it or let me kind of qualify that and say this. I don't believe conspiracy theories and conspiracism is intrinsic to Christian faith. It's not, but Christianity in the West has accommodated itself to the very patterns of thinking that make us want to believe conspiracy theory. Hmm. 
So if you follow my logic, so what that means is people who are Christians, A, in modern societies, B, and let me kind of talk about modern societies. If modern societies, if being modern is all about believing some aspect of individualism in believing that when human beings make a decision, that there's, there's an effect to that decision. And that if you push that far enough, modern people love to believe that everything that we do, we shape the world. We control everything. And that's what a conspiracy theory is basically claiming, that everything can be explained in terms of human action and cause and effect, that there's, hmm. there's little that conditions human action. So I know I'm getting into the academic you know, kind of side of things, but so let me draw this back to how Christians can find actually common ground with this. The common ground is this. You and I, as Christians, we confess and believe Jesus is the meaning and measure of all things. And where we draw a line in conspiracy theory saying that doesn't give us omniscience. That doesn't, that believing that Jesus is the center of history does not make Jesus the ultimate alternative fact. Hmm. It doesn't mean that all your suspicion, it doesn't mean that all your ideological suspicion, it doesn't mean that that gets baptized into your Christian faith. But what ends up happening is because a lot of the disinformation activisms that people hear on CNN, see on X or Twitter, they, if they follow their, their claims through the conclusion, they're going to pathologize you and me, Caleb, as conspiracy theorists, because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. we believe that a Jewish man was the son of God. So we have to be honest enough about what our theological claims are, and that mm-hmm. if we apply those same disinformation activisms and standards to ourselves, we end up becoming conspiracy theorists. So what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to save theology and Christian confession from Christian conspiracy theorists, while at the same time, preserving theology from disinformation analysts and activisms that would say, well, all religious people are irrational. Mm -hmm. So of course you'd believe a conspiracy theory. My research is trying to fight these two things and touch grass at the Thanksgiving (laughs) table and Mm -hmm. say, how can I find common ground? And I think, I really think that's it. it. It all comes down to this very simple point for all of its apocalypticism that fueled January 6th, evangelical Christianity in America is not actually apocalyptic enough. We are not determined by Jesus as the meaning and measure of all things. Hmm. The moment that we start to buy into sort of these alternative explanations and stuff like that, the conspiracy theories fail because they're too simplistic, (laughs) because they're too mechanical. Because Mm -hmm. as much as you want to talk about a deep state, guess what? The deep state is way more complex. If there is one, it's way more complex than a silly conspiracy theory can narrate. There's Mm -hmm. no amount of network analysis that can get behind and beneath all the ways that power manifests itself. And this is why I think the Bible's language about power, the principalities Mm -hmm. and powers, is actually a a toolkit for the church to talk about this. But the problem is, who's talking about the powers and demons right now? Mm -hmm. It's it's Christian nationalists. It's not a church disciplined and determined by Christ. So I, I covered a lot of ground there and I might've lost some people and I, and, and who are still kind of sitting at the Thanksgiving room table saying, okay, well, I'm not bringing that to talk with my uncle. <laughs> so let me, let me bring all of that back to the Thanksgiving table to say this between Christians, 
right? This is what, that's what we're talking about is between questions. What is at stake with a Christian believing conspiracy theory is this, their certainty and their comfort. The question to ask a Christian who is buying into conspiracy theory is what do you have to gain by this being true? Mm. And what do you have to lose by this being false? Good. That question is the beginning of a very painful process. So what a lot of people are rushing to do is to pathologize conspiracy theorists when they don't realize that what they're asking someone to do is take on a whole lot of pain Mm -hmm. in divesting of false beliefs. Um, But to land that at the Thanksgiving table between Christians or relatives, that question of what do you have to gain by this being true and what do you have to lose from it being false? Mm -hmm. That's a question of, of generous curiosity and -hmm. you have nothing to lose by asking. In fact, you're the one doing the listening. Hey, I'm curious. Mm -hmm. Like what, what do you gain by this being true? Yeah. And what do you lose if suddenly tomorrow it's, it's false? Yep. Because then you're not putting them in a position to have to defend. Oh, this is why it's true. You're, you're actually generously assuming that it is. Just for the sake of a conversation. Mm -hmm. And if we're Christians determined by Jesus Christ, we know that our our witness is all that we're called to bring to the table. And that our persuasion can take other forms. It's not a call to be irrational or to be angry, but it can take other forms. And there's some confidence with that. I, Mm -hmm. I let loose, man. I let loose. No, you did. This is so good. I I I hope that's helpful. It's very, very helpful, especially when we're trying to understand what's going on in their minds and hearts. It's it's Mm. connected to what I hear you saying is it's connected to something deeper. It's not just like oh, I read this and so I believe it. It's it's connected to some sort of belief structure that makes sense of a complicated world. And I love that you've pointed out that that what conspiracy theories do is kind of, it's a biblical instinct, namely mm-hmm. there's something going on underneath the surface. Yeah. The problem with conspiracy theories is what I've heard you say is uh, it's too light. Uh, they're not yeah. going far enough. They're, they're kind of stopping too soon. And, you know, the apostle Paul talks about that we wage war, not against flesh and blood, right? That which is on the surface, right. but against powers, principalities, rulers, and authorities and the American evangelical just their imagination is so impoverished as as it relates to the power dynamic and structures of biblical ideas like the divine council or right. Um, right. you know how kings were often tethered to uh, chaos evil uh, even yeah. the figure of Leviathan this chaos right. creature from the deep could kind of creep up and and infect humans or humans could could give themselves over to the power of chaos evil and become monstrous themselves. I mean, uh, that instinct is a right instinct. I think the book of Revelation is trying to show us when you look at kings who are making you money and giving you economic security, right. it, it may well be that behind them is this evil power structure. Right. And so right. To, to, to agree with our loved ones that something is going on, Mm-hmm. Uh, but maybe even pushing it of like, are you sure that's it? And then yeah, right. what, how would my life be different if this is true? How would right. our lives be different if it's not true? And maybe even one question I might uh, add is how would Jesus, 
How would the teachings, example, and leading of Jesus guide us if this is true? Mm. I think I think the first thing that Jesus modeled um, <laughs> is is a humility. Mm-hmm. That I mean, this I mean, we're talking about God incarnate and the Son, to, who said, "The Father knows the time." Yeah, right. And <laughs> and so good. I think that that is probably the the point. Uh, mm-hmm. And and let me let me express this maybe in a, a, the same the same point, but from a, a different angle or dimension. Um, uh, one of the, the my supervisors very fond of saying Brian uh, Brock uh, that. that the only thing that the church knows that the world doesn't is who sustains it. Mm-hmm. So the, mm-hmm. the only thing that so the church good. knows that the world doesn't is who sustains it. And without going into a massive uh, tangent, this conspiracy theories among Christians is a form of Gnosticism. Yeah. This, this word Gnosis, uh, this idea of like pure knowledge that was kind of mm-hmm. erythral and only spiritual and actually kind of reflects a lot of the spiritual warfare language that motivates a lot of evangelicals, like mm-hmm, Frank Peretti mm-hmm. kind of style stuff. Yeah. Um, but what, what Brian's statement is meant to share in my point about Jesus's humility in knowledge is essentially that the church has one task and that's to proclaim whose world it is. Mm-hmm. And, and in that we are free and that mm. freedom actually comes with an ability to say with Jesus, I don't know. Maybe another mm-hmm. way to make that point is to say with John the Baptist, I am not the Christ. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. That, that we, as much as we feel like we are doing our faith a service or a credit or an apologia, a defense, an answer by saying, let me tell you who's really the president of the United States. Mm. That is an abdication of what it means to be a Christian witness and that mm. our witness might actually better be served by being a people who say, I don't know. Hmm. And not to claims of election fraud necessarily, right. but I think one of the tensions that I learned throughout this whole project is realizing that one of the ways we pathologize conspiracy theorists is a sort of naive approach hmm. that mm-hmm. would leave us saying, what what the mainstream media reports is what is happening and that's it. And no yeah. no one actually believes that. No one actually believes that what we see through our screens is all that reality is. Right. Um, so when we look at Jesus, we look at how he modeled his existence. Uh, the final thing I would say, so again, if, if Jesus says, I don't know the time the father does, if like with Brian kind of points back to that, the only thing that the church knows that the world doesn't is who sustains it. How do we express that? I want to suggest that a we are all on the verge of believing some kind of conspiracy some kind of theory of what's going mm-hmm. on behind the scenes in society and politics etc no no one's immune to this. this is a this is a human problem it's a modern problem so there's all these kind of onion layers going back to that analogy so what i want to suggest if if we're following jesus's model here uh in his life if we're living his life we're going to be comfortable saying the father knows the time we're going to be people who are bearing witness who are speaking, who are not silent, but we're speaking the thing that we must because the church is the church. And the way that we integrate that awareness, that presence into our life is, I want to just make the case it's, it's prayer. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. That it's, it's being a people who pray. And uh, so th- the way that that kind of finds its fullness expression, I think is just the Lord's prayer. 
that that when we pray our father who art in heaven hallowed be your name your kingdom come your will be done like we are we are sharing in Jesus's heart and his life for us the church across time and in our own time and i think we think too little of it i think i think too little of it um we don't really we, we jump so quickly to rational reasons of why should we contest conspiracy theories that we kind of show ourselves to be swimming and drinking the same, the, drinking the same water hmm. that, that we're all kind of drinking and saying, Oh, well, there's gotta be something more going on there. Um, yeah. where prayer is a way to align ourselves and commune with the communion that Christ's blood has accomplished for us. So, That's so good. We, we are a weird people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we are right. we're weird people and yeah. <laughs> and so the the idea of putting distance between ourselves and conspiracy theorists may kind of sound good because like oh man we're you know we're not we're not like that but when we really look at ourselves in the mirror and what we really confess and believe um yeah you know i, I think I'm, I'm quoting russell moore at this point who said you know we believe something far stranger <laughs> yeah uh, right when we right. take moral convictions or christian convictions about life into the public square it's you know, that's, that's bizarre. That's weird. And, and kind of to push past that and agree and kind of make a jujitsu move with it and, and take the momentum and, and, and embrace it and, and turn it around and say, yeah, we, we believe something far more radical and far more determinative for all of reality. So Jesus is not advocating for some kind of alternate reality. The Christian claim is reality is Jesus. There Mm -hmm. is no alternate. And even, even those who reject it, are caught up in it. And that's, that's, yep. that's quoting Bonhoeffer. And yep. so, yeah, like the, I'm smiling. I mean, there's, there's really, there's a sense that the problem of conspiracy theory, I think can help the church in America regain. If we face it theologically, like it can help us regain the joy of what it means to be determined by Jesus mm-hmm. in a moment that mm-hmm. feels like an apocalypse because yeah. the apocalypse has already happened. <laughs> like yeah, we so are good. living in in a newness that has yet to be manifested. So this isn't some erythral gnosis <laughs> mm-hmm. we, we believe salvation was accomplished at, at AD 30, AD 33. And, mm-hmm. uh, and this is, this is what we're all getting caught up in. Um, and so it's, it. it's weirder and stranger <laughs> than you've been led, than we've all been led to believe. And, uh, and there's something, there's something oddly compelling to that, I think. Yep. So the takeaway is when you're talking with friends, family, loved ones who are imbibing conspiracy theories, just to remember uh, the things that I believe as a Christian, uh, it's actually weirder than the, some of the stuff that they're saying. Yeah. And so yeah. that brings us to a space of humility uh, and compassion and graciousness. Uh, well, Jared, thank you so much for giving us your time and thank you so much for your research and your studies. I know it will be a huge help uh, to the church. Where can people find you and your work? Um, come to Scotland. I won't be here for much longer, okay. <laughs> but, uh, everyone, everyone, you're, you're welcome to come to Scotland. Um, okay. yeah, I, I, do it. it. Yeah. If anyone's interested, I, I really, I put that out there. You can contact me uh, my website, uh, jaredstacy.com. Uh, you can contact me through there. Um, I'm on, uh, the site formerly known as Twitter. Um, okay. you can find me there, Jared Stacy. Uh, and then also probably Instagram, uh, would be the other good place to find me. Uh, Jared M as in Manchester, Stacy, Jared M. Stacy over on Instagram. So yeah, we'd love to Perfect. reach out. And again, if people have questions or a particular conspiracy theory, I'm, I, I, this is what I got in it for. And I'm more than happy. Uh, if you're listening to this, say, okay, but he didn't talk about the stolen election. And I really need like 
like bite size. Like, how do I talk to someone about that? Uh, we went the theological route. We went the 30,000 foot route. So if you're listening to this and you're like, okay, but I've got a particular conspiracy theory. I can't promise you that I have all the skill sets to be able to unpack like, well, here's what you would do. But if you just need someone to talk to you about it and throw, you know, throw some paint up on a wall and see if what, see what sticks and uh, what looks good in, in a certain light. Um, I'd be more than happy, uh, given the time to kind of work through that and listen, uh, and be of any help I can. Awesome. Thank you so much, Jared. I appreciate it. Thanks, Gil. Thanks for having me.